Let's pray together. God, we've come from near and far, and we've gathered within these walls to find you. Give us all, including the preacher, open hearts, open ears, open minds, that after this morning we would be different, that we would not be the same when we leave as we were when we came. And now God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together be found acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. On June the 19th, 1989, a group of scholars gathered in a conference room at Arizona State University. I was there too. The purpose of the gathering was an interview, an investigation, an inquisition, an interrogation. They didn't use the rack. There was no pulling of fingernails, no water torture, but they might as well have. It was called a comprehensive doctoral examination. It was my comprehensive doctoral examination. And whenever I get nervous about preaching, I just think about June the 19th, 1989. The committee filed into the room, they of the sinister countenances, they of the evil smirks. Some of them brought notes, some didn't. We circled a conference table and we all took our seats. Thus, the games began. The first questions were innocuous enough. I was doing okay. Then the tricks began. Two of my interlocutors took opposite sides on a question. Which answer should I give? A million thoughts ran through my mind, and they all collided at the same time. Do I lean to one committee member or another committee member? Do I go with the most powerful person in the room? Do I just say what I think? Do I even know what I think? As the questioners took their turn circling the table, one person continued to ask the same question every time it was his turn. The third time that he did that, I made eye contact with another committee member, and I caught him in the midst of a very serious eye roll. In today's gospel reading, Jesus is having his oral exam among the chief priests in Jerusalem. They were trying various ways to trip him up. If you look before our passage at Matthew, you see them ask some pretty tough questions. Some of these questions are still tough for us today. What do I do about paying my taxes? What's life going to be like after the resurrection? They're difficult questions for sure. But Jesus so far has caught them up in their own snares. They just can't seem to trick him. But they're convinced that nobody can answer this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? Do you know what Cliff's Notes are? I'm sure no one in this room has ever used Cliff's Notes. I, I, I know, it, so I'll educate you. 
Uh, Cliff's notes are short, condensed versions of the classics of literature. Uh, they are a staple of students who are either overcommitted or, shall I say, just a little bit lazy. And the lawyer basically says, okay, we had enough of this. Give me the Cliff's notes version. I know there are lots and lots of commandments, but tell me, which is the greatest one? But the lawyer has broken a fundamental rule for cross-examination. Never ask a question for which you don't already know the answer. The inquisitor gets caught up in his own impatience. He's failed with his first two questions, so he drags out his most challenging question. Tell us the greatest commandment. So what does Jesus say? Here are Jesus' words from today's gospel text that you just heard Chelsea read. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. I could end the sermon right there, but I won't. Instead, hear these instructions from Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. These are words that every Jewish person would have committed to memory as a child. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the ordinances that the Lord your God charged me to teach you to observe in the land that you are about to cross into and occupy so that you and your children and your children's children may fear the Lord your God. Hear, therefore, Israel, and observe them diligently, so that it may go well with you, and so that you may multiply greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Does that sound familiar? Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you're at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. These aren't just any words from Hebrew scripture. They are called the Shema. These words are considered the most important part of the Jewish prayer service. Children were and still are taught to say them every single night before they go to bed. In Israel, even today, these words are placed in little boxes called mezuzahs that are attached to the door frames of houses. I was in Israel a few years ago, and in the hotel, every room has a little mezuzah on it to fulfill this commandment from Hebrew Scripture. And inside are the words that Jesus has said to the high priests. That's how they obey this commandment, to write these words on the doorposts of your houses and on your gates. Everyone there knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. And it was, of course, the perfect answer 
to the question. The tricksters have been caught in their own trap. Jesus quotes their own tradition back to them. But Jesus does even more. He doesn't just stop with quoting their tradition back to them. He gives them a picture of what that tradition should actually look like. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind. But what that means in actual practice is that we love our neighbors as ourselves. We love God by loving our neighbors. Luke's gospel says the same thing, but he uses different words. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks of you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Love your neighbor as yourself. We call it the golden rule, right? We learn it as small children. Some version of this is in all of the world's major religious traditions. It's the secret of living together, of existing in community. And it's the way that we carry out the greatest commandment. It's the core of the gospel. Now, gospel is a word that church folks throw around a lot, especially preachers and theologians. Gospel, the word gospel, means quite simply good news. It's the Greek word evangelion. It's the root word for both evangelism and a word we hear a lot in the news evangelical. And evangelical is supposed to be someone who is carrying good news. Actually, the, word, the use of the word evangelion in the first century was an act of radical subversion. The word was normally used to proclaim the good news of Caesar, the good news of the government. It was a good news that Caesar was coming to visit, or it was good news that Caesar had won a great military victory. In a world where Caesar and his government were considered God, to use the word for something else was subversive. It was an act of revolution, an act of defiance. When it was used by Christians to proclaim good news, brought by a poor, itinerant Jewish preacher from Galilee, It wasn't just subversive, it was practically absurd. Good news? Indeed. But Jesus tells us in today's text that good news isn't the coming of a Caesar. Good news is the submitting of our own desires for the good of others. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Late in my mother-in-law's life, she experienced deep, deep depression. Because of her depression, we couldn't let her watch the news. Every car wreck, every tornado, every hurricane, every crime 
would just send her deeper and deeper into depression. Her ability to empathize was out of control. She couldn't think of anyone else without being in pain and experiencing it herself. Empathy is the ability to understand or share the feelings of another. It's not the same as sympathy. That's to feel sorry for someone else's predicament. Empathy is to join another's journey. Empathy is to try to understand what they're going through, to try to feel what they're feeling. To empathize is to seriously consider what it would be like if you had the same experience that someone else was having. There's a yard sign in a neighborhood near Second Baptist Church in downtown Little Rock. When we were there, we drive by it a lot. And there are two or three of them, and they're obviously kind of this neighborhood project. And the signs have large letters, and they're placed in their front yards right down near the street. So when you drive by, you can't miss them. And they say this, drive like your children live here. That's a plea for empathy. Pretend your children live here. Drive like your children live here. And by so doing, you help us keep our children safe. That's a great example of empathy. Empathy is an ability that we have to have in order to live in community, at least to live in healthy communities. The ability to to identify with the experiences of others. To empathize. It's biological. But we don't all exercise our empathy in healthy ways. At the other end of the spectrum, from the experience of my mother-in-law is the person we describe as having narcissistic personality disorder. Narcissistic personality disorder, I'm just glad I said that twice in a row without messing it up. I'll go for three. Narcissistic personality disorder is evidenced by a long-term pattern of abnormal behavior. It's characterized by exaggerated feelings of self-importance, an excessive need for admiration, and a lack of of empathy. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do under you, unto you. That's the good news Jesus brings that has changed the world. That's what we call the gospel. That's what we call good news. So, Let me ask you some questions. If your theology, your view of God, allows you to deny services to people because of their color, their economic status, their sexual orientation, or gender identity, is your theology good news or fake news? If your theology supports a system in which the top 1% of families take home an income an average of 26 times as much as the bottom 99%, is your theology good news or fake news? If your theology is okay with governments separating families and putting children in cages at the border, is your theology good news or fake news? 
If your theology says it's okay that while African Americans and Hispanics make up 32% of the population, but they make up 56% of all incarcerated people in this country, is your theology good news or fake news? If your theology looks the other way, while corporations pay little to no taxes, and the people who buy their products are under an ever-increasing tax load, is your theology good news or fake news? If your theology says that health care should only be available to those with the ability to pay, is your theology good news or fake news? If your theology says that we have no responsibility to care for our planet through the responsible use of resources, is your theology good news or fake news? If your theology allows you to pick and choose which parts of the Bible you will embrace and ignore its call to love all your neighbors, is your theology good news or fake news? My dad had a saying that he repeated often. It was actually on a small plaque behind the counter at a bakery to which we went often when I was a child. It goes like this. Never criticize a person until you've walked a mile in their moccasins. I doubt if my dad ever knew that that line came from an 1895 poem by a woman named Mary Lathrop. Here's the last part of that poem. Just walk a mile in his moccasins before you abuse, criticize, and accuse. If just for one hour you could find a way to see through his eyes instead of your own muse, I believe you'd be surprised to see that you've been blind and narrow-minded, even unkind. There are people on reservations and in the ghettos who have so little hope and too much worry on their minds. Brother, there but for the grace of God go you and I. Just for a moment, slip into his mind and traditions and see the world through his spirit and eyes before you cast a stone or falsely judge his conditions. Remember to walk a mile in his moccasins and remember the lessons of humanity taught to you by your elders. We will be known forever by the tracks we leave in other people's lives, our kindnesses and generosity. Take the time to walk a mile in his moccasins. We have a severe empathy deficiency in our culture between our distractions and our busyness and our ambitions, our selfishness, and sometimes simply our hopelessness. We just don't see the world around us. We don't hear the cries of help. We don't see the faces of need. We don't feel the touch of our fellow humans. And sometimes we get so distracted trying to figure out the gospel that we fail to see that it's not a trick question. 
It's actually the only question that matters. And the answer is simple. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and prophets. That's not fake news. That's the best news of all. The good news that we're willing to call gospel has to be good news for everyone, or it's not good news for anyone. Would you pray with me? God, we bow before you to to listen, to hear, and God, to let words of yours sink into our hearts. Speak, O God, for we listen. In Jesus' name. As is our tradition, we will pause. Let Holy Spirit continue to speak this morning.